God's grace is present in the tiny, insignificant details of your life. It is everywhere, like the, like the sun, the California sun that sits high in the midday sky. As you cannot escape its rays, you cannot escape its heat, you cannot escape its light, so you cannot escape the grace of God. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to our new two-part sermon series, God's Lavish Grace from Pastor Paul Twiss. Have you ever experienced a problem so daunting that it seemed no human being on earth had the power to change it? Like a call from the doctor confirming a cancer diagnosis, or news that a loved one was in an accident. Such crushing circumstances bring us to our knees and reveal our total dependence on God's sovereign control over our lives. Today, Pastor Paul brings us into the spiritually dark world of Second Kings, where Israel has rebelled against God. In response, God sends prophets to His people, urging them to repent and turn back to Him. Within this narrative, we meet Naaman, a respected Gentile army commander. And although Naaman had experienced great success, he battled the debilitating disease of leprosy, something only a sovereign God can cure. Here's part one of God's lavish grace. AC3N4AB. It's like zip codes in America, except they're, they're slightly more specific in the UK. They identify a particular building or a house. Now, EC3N4AB probably doesn't mean much to any of you. It certainly didn't mean anything to me, but it's very important for the, for the yeomen that work there. It's very important to Queen Elizabeth. It's important to Prince Charles and Princes William and Harry, and indeed all of the royal family. You see, EC3N4AB is the postal code to the Tower of London. Now, you probably know that the Tower of London houses a lot of stuff, a lot of valuable stuff. The imperial state crown is there. St. Edward's crown is there. The imperial crown of India. I don't know why we've got that. (laughs) The coronation crown, the king's scepter, the queen's scepter, the sovereign orb, the small orb, the sword of state, the sword of offering, the sword of justice, the sword of mercy. On and on it goes. The collection is huge. Billions of dollars worth, collectively known as the crown jewels. Now, you can go and see the crown jewels. If you're in London and you're willing to pay £22, it's about $37, you can go and see all of these items on display. You can walk through one viewing room after another and you can see all the crowns and all the swords and all the scepters, all glistening gold, silver, diamonds. And you might be forgiven if you start to become a little bit complacent towards them. I mean, when you're in room viewing room number seven and you see crown 42... You could be forgiven if you don't fuss too much about it. But there is one item in all of the crown jewels that you would stop for. There's one item that would cause you to stand still, to marvel at it, to behold it, to walk around it, to view it from every angle, made in 1661 for the coronation of King Charles II. It's the sovereign scepter. <laughs> 
Now, why would you be fascinated with the sovereign scepter? Because in it, set in the scepter, is the largest diamond in the whole collection. It's slightly smaller than my hand. It's the second largest diamond in the whole world. As you walk around it, it is brilliant. It is so pure, and the light radiates from it. It cannot but catch your eye. You would stop and slow down the procession through those rooms. So amazing is this one diamond. Second Kings chapter 5. It's the story of a leper, a Gentile leper who gets healed. It's a familiar story. It's an amazing story. There is so much going on in this text. There are so many characters. There's plot after subplot. But more important than anything else going on in here, rising above everything else going on in this piece of scripture is the diamond that is God's rich grace. God's abundant grace is on display Just like the scepter, just like that diamond in the crown jewels, God's lavish, rich, abundant grace is set forth for us on display in 2 Kings 5 so that we would see it, so that we would behold it, so that we would praise and worship our God all the more. Unlike the people of Israel at this time. You see, we're in Kings And Kings is a book of decline. It's a book of decay. The kingdom is falling to bits. The people are idolatrous. They're adulterous. They're disobeying the law that was given to them way back in the Torah. They're not listening to it anymore. They're going their own way. And so sure enough, the curses that were foretold to them are coming upon them. There are people heading straight towards exile. And as God's grace is set forth, He is so gracious all the way through kings. He keeps sending prophets, one prophet after another, to warn his people, if you would just repent, if you would just stop and turn back to me. So gracious in sending these men. And Elisha is one of those prophets. He is one of God's spokesmen. Elisha, his ministry, 2 Kings 2 through chapter 9 Two through nine. So as we zoom into chapter five, we're really at the center of his ministry here. As it's laid out for us in narrative form, we're hitting on the center of his ministry. And it should be no surprise to us that what we see is God's lavish grace set forward like a diamond. And the narrator turns it for us. As we walk through the narrative, he turns that diamond for us that we can see his grace from very different angles. We can appreciate the richness and the depth of his grace. So that unlike the people, we might worship God, we might praise him, and we might obey him. So look, look with me at the narrative. See God's grace, firstly, in that it is sovereign. God's grace is sovereign, verses 1 through 4. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. 
She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. So verse 1, we're introduced to the main character, that is on, on a human level, the main character in this story, Naaman. We see lots of things about him, that he's a, he's a commander. Naaman's a strong commander, a successful man. He's in high favor with the king of Syria. He's a leader. He's a powerful man. He must be a clever man. He's a figure of authority. And he's a leper. Naaman's a strong man. He's a figure of authority. He's in high favor with the king. He's a commander of the armies. And he's a leper. There's a tension introduced straight away. This strong military commander has a debilitating weakness. He's a leper. You see, Naaman's got that awkward skin disease that's spoken about all the way back in in Leviticus 13 and 14. He's got that awkward skin disease that means he was probably covered in pinky reddy boils that would occasionally burst. Naaman's got that awkward skin disease, which means if it was left to develop, he would start to lose his fingers. He'd take off his shoe and a toe would be left inside. Naaman's got that strange skin disease that if he were an Israelite, he would be banished out of the community, sent out of the camp. He's got that strange skin disease which can be caught by stuff, inanimate things. His clothing could get leprosy, and if his clothing was found to have leprosy, it would be burnt. He's got that strange skin disease that only God could heal. Leprosy was beyond the healing of man. It was beyond man's ability to heal. Only God could heal leprosy. And this is what has struck down Naaman, the great commander. Well, as this tension is introduced to the story, this tension of a great commander who's a leper, so the doors for God's grace are opened and it's ushered in. Firstly, we see that God's grace has already been at work in his life on a big scale. We see that Naaman was a successful commander, not because of his might and not because of his military prowess, but because the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given him victory. We don't know why, we're not told why, but we see that his success was because of Yahweh. God had already been at work in his life on the big scale, moving armies and winning battles for him. And then we zoom straight in and we see that God has been at work on the small scale. You see, the first suggestion that this tension will be resolved comes about through a little girl. Verse 2. Now, who is this little girl? She certainly stands in stark contrast to Naaman. We have Naaman the great man, and we have the little girl. We have Naaman the commander, and we have the captive. We have Naaman, known by the king, and we have this girl, who to us remains nameless. She's a little girl. All we do know about her is that she was taken off in one of Naaman's raids in Israel. So she's been taken from Israel and forced to work as a slave in Naaman's house, which is amazing because surely we would expect some degree of resentment towards Naaman, some degree of bitterness towards him. What became of her parents? We don't know. 
We do know her life's been turned upside down, and here she is in a, a stranger's house. And yet, God works through her heart to extend his grace to Naaman, such that she suggests he should go and see the prophet. This is how Naaman will be healed. She says, Mom, that man, your husband, that, that took me away, he should go and see the prophet in my home country. She says, Mom, the, the man that snatched me away from my parents, can I suggest how he'll be healed? From the most unexpected corner, God's grace, the spring of God's grace issues towards Naaman. So within the first four verses of this, we see that God's grace is on display in a sovereign way. It's on display in the big and it's on display in the small. We know from the first four verses of 2 Kings 5 that God's grace is sovereign. It is sovereign and it is sovereign for you. It was sovereign for Naaman. It's sovereign for you. God's grace is everywhere. It is everywhere in your life. It is not absent anywhere. It's in your big decisions. It's in the big things that are going on in your life. And God's grace is present in the tiny, insignificant details of your life. It is everywhere, like the, like the sun, the California sun that sits high in the midday sky. As you cannot escape its rays, you cannot escape its heat, you cannot escape its light, so you cannot escape the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God, not because of who you are and not because of what you've done, not because of your efforts, but rather in spite of your sin, in spite of your brokenness and your fallenness, God's grace is flooding your life everywhere. It's in your job. It's in your family situation. It's in every relationship. God's sovereign grace is at work in your marriage. It's at work in your parenting, your early mornings, your late evenings, your quiet moments. It's here today. It's here tomorrow. It's ever present in every corner of your life so that you with the psalmist can say, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's grace is sovereign. So take comfort. Take comfort. There is nothing in your life that God has forgotten about. There's nothing in your life that is out with the sovereign grace of God. There are no details that he does not know about and in which he is not working his purposes. God's grace is sovereign. Point number one. The narrative moves on. The tension needs to be resolved. We've got a potential solution here. The narrator carries on for us. And in so doing, he turns that diamond once more. He turns it so that we see not only is God's grace sovereign, but we see God's grace is surprising. God's grace is surprising. Read with me verses 5 through 12. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes 
and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So Naaman the leper, the great commander of the armies of Syria, he's sick. He can't be healed. He's experiencing God's grace in a sovereign way. God is working in the big, big decisions of his life, and he's working in the tiny decisions. And a source of hope has come from a little girl who he took from Israel. She said, go and see the leper. And Naaman responds, and he follows through on the plan. Now, the thing to note is that in these next few verses, Naaman is acting in accordance with the norm. He's, he's following the protocol of the day. Naaman's doing everything that would be expected of him. First off, he goes to the king. It's appropriate that he goes to his king. He doesn't just set off for Israel. He goes to his king, and he, he tells him the plan. The king agrees, and the king sends a letter to the king of Israel. Now, that's the norm. That's the way it would have been done. One king corresponds with another king, and it's right that the CEO of a company emails the CEO, and it's not right that the, the boss emails the secretary or the second in charge. So the king writes a letter to the king, and that's entirely appropriate. And the king also sends a gift, which is what normally happened. If one king was to entreat another, he would send a gift. Now, this gift is huge by anyone's standards. The king of Syria sends a huge gift, and all that communicates to us is that the king of Syria thought, well, if I send a gift big enough, then Naaman will be healed. If I send enough money, then that's the healing purchased. And to our surprise, at least to, to Naaman's surprise, the king rips his clothes. The king of Israel rips his clothes, and he says, I'm not God. He says, I can't do this. This is beyond me. What's with the letter and the money? I'm not someone who can heal leprosy. To Naaman's shock, the normal way of doing things is not going to work this time. The normal method, the normal protocol is out of the window. In fact, just to underline that, the king of Israel says he's trying to stir up an argument with me. So crazy was it to the king of Israel that they would be suggesting that he heal him, that he receive a letter and money so that the prophet could heal him. So surprise number one is that this letter and this money, as is the normal way of doing things, won't work. Surprise number two is Naaman is sent to Elisha's house. We see that somehow, verse 8, Elisha hears about the king tearing his clothes. We don't know how, but that's just more evidence that God is working behind the scenes here. God is in this. 
And Elisha says, note carefully, Elisha says, verse 8, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, that's really important because we understand there Elisha's motives. Elisha wants Naaman to come. He's eager to heal Naaman. Why? Because he wants Naaman to know that there's a prophet in Israel. Now, we need to remember that the prophets are God's spokespeople. They're representatives of God. So as he said that he may know there's a a prophet in Israel, it's as good as saying that he may know that there is a God in Israel, that there is the God in Israel. It's the message of 1 Kings and 2 Kings all the way through, that the people would know who God is, and so trust him, obey him, worship him. So Elisha says, come, let him experience the grace. Tell him to come to me. And so all of a sudden, we see in verse 9 that Naaman is now on his way to Elisha's house with his horses and his chariots and his full entourage, which is the last thing he expected to be doing. Surprise number two is that Naaman is on his way to Elisha's house. He thought he was going to the palace to see the king. He took his horses and his chariots, a huge entourage, all very impressive, and now he's being directed down some side street to see Elisha. We have no reason to think Elisha lived in a a palace. We have no reason to think Elisha was nearby to the king. He was just a prophet appointed by God. He wasn't connected with the royal family. So Naaman is turned away from the palace. He's sent down the side streets. He's knocking on the door saying, "Is, is this Elisha's house? Oh, no, down that street, second on the left, third house along. There's a humbling. There must be a humbling going on in Naaman's heart here. He thought he was off to see the king with a letter from his king and a huge gift. That's not going to work. And so surprise two, he's now off to find little old Elisha. Surprise number three is that Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. Elisha doesn't even come. I mean, this is is like the Queen of England coming up to your house. And you say to one of the kids, go outside, say hi to Liz, tell her I'm busy. I mean, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it, and that's exactly what Elisha does do. Naaman must be so angry now. Those boils must be bursting everywhere. He was not expecting this. As he humbled himself to go and see Elisha, he thought the least this man can do is come out to meet him, but he won't even come out. And then surprise number four is the message. The messenger comes out and he says, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored. I mean, what kind of healing is that? To wash in the Jordan seven times. We see that Naaman the Gentile, don't forget that Naaman's a Gentile. Naaman the Gentile is used to magic. He's used to sorcery. He's used to mystic healers. He says in verse 11, I thought he was going to come out and wave his hand over me and I would be healed. That is Naaman's mindset. That is his norm. And God's grace is not operating at all in accordance with his plan. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Naaman's story reminds us the grace of God can transform insurmountable obstacles. Now, while the Lord can take away physical ailments, Jesus Christ came into the world to meet our greatest need to heal our souls from sin. When Jesus' disciples asked him about who could be saved in Mark chapter 10, he responded by saying, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Have you trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation? 
Our website has more information, timelesstruthtoday.org. Scroll to the article titled, What Does It Mean to Be a Christian and Know the Forgiveness of Your Sin? There you'll find more on how knowing Christ will work a miracle of forgiveness in your life. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't have a home church, come worship with us Sunday at 1030 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Hope you'll join us tomorrow for part two, the conclusion in this short series, God's Lavish Grace. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.